I'm Amanda. I'm Denise. And I am attorney Spencer Cordell. And this is Disturbing Behaviors. So today we're going to be talking about the psychology and laws pertaining to the Craig Price murders that we've been talking about this month. So, Denise, I think you had some questions that you wanted to talk to Spencer about. Well, I was just, as we talked about, I'm very well aware of this case because it happened not only in my hometown, but like very close geographically to where I was as as a teenager. And Craig Price is only one year younger than me, which is just mind-blowing. I was always fascinated by this case because I didn't realize in Rhode Island that prior to this, that if you were under, you know, if you were a minor, the, the longest they could hold you for a crime was to your 21st birthday. Like I, not that I would go back and do crime prior to that, but I just, <laughs> not like I was she thinking, might. oh, you know what? Missed <laughs> yeah, opportunity. Just saying, you know, <laughs> listen, those bullies in high school could have had a different outcome, but no, the whole case from beginning to end fascinated me. And we, we've talked about this largely because Craig never had any of those checks marks that we talked about, like with Eileen, where, you know, the abuse, the drug use, the, the assaults, anything like that, nothing. We talked about how his parents did everything right in the 80s in Rhode Island as a family of color. They got him into counseling and it, he still he still murdered four people. So, I mean, that was for me, it's just, you know, what are the kind of what as an attorney when you're looking at you know I don't want to call them children but like teenagers they're still minors you're still in that you know child development you know teenagers do stupid things definitely not murder murder's not on that list I mean just kind of like as an attorney this case was presented to you what you know as a prosecutor on the going back to your prosecutor side what would, if you had a, a minor, like say somebody between the ages of 14 and 17, what would kind of be your litmus test for what would make it a, to charge them as an adult? All right. Uh, in, in Florida, the, it sounds like the prosecutors in Florida have a lot more discretion than at the time they did in Rhode Island. And obviously they've changed the, the laws on that. And as a prosecutor, you've got to look at each case individually. And I guess, you know, it's, it's one thing when you say looking at this case, and obviously he was a very young man when these, when these actions occurred, but just the, the seriousness of these offenses suggests that it's appropriate to, to charge as an adult. When you get into to murders and, and taking yeah. somebody's life, um, and, and in fact, in Florida, depending on the seriousness of the crime, it may need to be charged as an adult. So generally, prosecutors have some discretion in Florida, but when you get into murders and, and punishable by life felonies, the law actually instructs them that they need to file it as as an adult in many circumstances. And certainly something like this is beyond you know, a kid doing some breaking and enterings or yeah. the, the kind of usual yeah. stupid stuff that you see yeah. from adolescence, this yeah. goes just way above and beyond that. 
Yeah, I, we Amanda and I, when in the the last episode, we talked about, you know, he claimed that he was like high on drugs and all this other stuff, but despite being high, he knew to target. He waited for these women to be alone. You know, to to me, he really sounded like he he's had those thoughts about killing people, and he just acted on them. You know, this isn't like, oh, I like fire, and you know, your kid set your your curtains on fire because they, they're playing with the candle. I mean, he really, I think he just wanted to take a life. Now, Rhode Island changed their laws, and obviously they couldn't go back and, and charge him differently because, you know, you can only be at the... Right, you see, the they're yeah. stuck with the laws at the time of the offense. They can't go back and change the laws and charge him with a law that he didn't violate at that time. No, I think we lost oh, her. you lose, Denise? Yeah, it looks like it. No, we still have it. It's recording. All right, good. I forgot where the hell we were. I don't even remember where we were. All right. Well, all right. Let's let's talk about kind of how the prosecution and the criminal system really went after Craig, kind of as a response to their inability to charge him, you know, as an adult. He would have been released at from Rhode Island training school at the age of 12 on his 21st birthday and we were talking just about how you know his childhood was his crimes and then while he was in the training center I think that there was a big push to keep him locked up I mean I remember the buzz about that very well Uh, we talked about that last night we've kind of touched on it last night when my cousins who are also from Rhode Island Mm -hmm. We remember that case. Like, if you go into Rhode Island and you ask anybody over the age of 35 about the Craig Price case, they can tell you. They, they know that case. But what, what, I mean, Amanda had the rundown where he was typically charged, whereas normally, like, when somebody's in a correctional situation where they're in, like, the juvenile corrections or even like the adult penitentiary, normally like infractions like fighting and things like that are punished by restrictions, solitary solitary confinement, things like that. They went after him and actually charged him. So I mean, as a going yeah, I like found a, that. What would your yeah, what's that was, your hot take on that? Well, they started getting really creative in charging him with these crimes. Yes, and that's something you don't usually see that the prison system in effect doesn't want to bog down the criminal justice system over you know adding charges on guys that are already locked up for a while or something like that so it's kind of exceptional i going back to my prosecutor days i was a prosecutor in charlotte county for a little while and there's a a florida state prison there and so i got some some prison cases but it's it's the rare case that actually gets referred over for an individual prosecution and that's definitely out of the ordinary. They were definitely being creative and trying to come up with additional ways to charge the guy with the almost specific intent. And you look back at, at the, the people who were campaigning for DA and everything back then. I mean, they were campaigning on that issue is, is keeping him locked up. And Oh, yeah. I, I don't know of any other case think- where something like that was done, where they specifically got creative to try to extend somebody's incarceration. One thing I found really interesting, because I've literally never seen it before, 
was he was charged with a violation of probation while he was in prison. I am confused as to how that happens. Well, technically, he was under a sentence. And if that sentence includes incarceration and probation, at least under Florida law, he's still under supervision. And it's not that he can obviously check into his probation officer every month because he's sitting in prison. But it's, I'd say it's theoretically possible they actually did it for him. And they used, I think they used another fight as an additional charge. And then that charge is what yeah. was the substantial violation of his probation, which I have never seen in any other case, although it's legally, it's not something they would generally legally try to bother to do, except for Craig Price. Yeah, right. I mean, I think the, the emotion, we talked about it, we, we addressed it in the, in the very first episode of this. I know, especially in today's views, there's a lot of uh, push on race. I don't recall anybody ever making this a race case like they were targeting him because he was black or he was targeting them because he was black and his victims were white i mean even last night when i was talking to my cousins they were like yeah they're everybody's mad because he brutally murdered these two little girls not saying that people weren't upset about the murders of the, the women but I think that as a society, we get really touchy when it comes to children, the weak ones, weak, you know, when somebody kills a child or somebody harms a child or somebody harms or kills somebody who's elderly, you know, people go completely nuts over animal abuse cases. So I really feel it kind of fell into that. But there were, what, two incidents, Amanda, where he, where Craig said it was because he was, it was his race. That they were targeting him. I yeah. Think were, yeah. During his, he was sent. He was convicted um, days before his twenty-first birthday of. I don't remember exactly what the charge was. I believe so, because yeah. he refused right. to do the psychological they, evaluation. They, they kind of yeah. made sure to get it done before his twenty-first to get an adult conviction on him, and that he couldn't be released. exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. he claimed during the sentencing that they were targeting him because of his race. Yeah. And he made and that a, was a prior... Of, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're fine. Well, you can, and, you can, and prior you can to never, that, he made it... Oh, sorry. You, you can never discount race uh, in the United States when you're talking about the criminal justice system because, as you guys know all right. too well, uh, the system tends to disproportionately uh, punish people of color and, and sentences tend oh. to be disproportionate. Oh. But... Obviously, I will. I will talk all day long that the system that we have systemic racism in the justice system. Right. Like the laws and everything were designed to kind of keep not just people of color, but poor people. I mean, it's it's. I'm sorry. The one thing that really never sat right with me is that you know judges and lawyers will sit there and tell you ignorance of the law is not an excuse of the law. Yet we're not taught laws. Do you know what I'm right. saying? Like we're not. There's so many laws, and the laws are so complicated and almost insane that we need a specialist like you to explain it to us. Yeah. Which I think really kind of sets up people who have limited income, limited educational opportunities to, you know, I think that if the, if, if the criminal system, if the justice, justice system, I use quotations for that, really wants you off the street, they'll find a way. You know, and they'll find those little loopholes. But I don't, I don't think that it was a matter of 
oh, you know, we just don't like this guy. He, if released, if ever released, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind he will kill again. And he, he you know, I don't think he's that. a redemption case. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and he's, you know, you talk about playing the race card and you get skeptical of it. That said, you're always skeptical of the system. But his crimes were so heinous and so terrible, mm. and the shockingness of mm. such a young man being able to commit these in such cold blood, and he got away with one for a year or so before committing the next series of yeah. those crimes, mm -hmm. it's hard to say that that's not the real issue of why they're going after him. When you commit the most infamous yeah. crime in Rhode Island history, yeah, you got to be worried that race is a factor in there, but the, the facts and extreme circumstances and, the, and the, the fact that children are victims are probably the overriding issue that caused them to go so, so, so strongly after this guy. Yeah. Right. And, you know, going back to what Denise was saying earlier about him going in with the intent to kill, I'm just not entirely sure that I agree with that because he didn't bring a weapon. All of the weapons used in all of the murders came from the victims' homes, which kind of tells me that he didn't go in there with the intent to kill anyone. I think he was surprised by the victims being home or catching him in the act, and then he killed them. I'm not saying he didn't enjoy it, but I'm not sure that he went in there with the intent. See, I think, I think he's a lot smarter than people are giving him credit for. Because if I walk into my, if I walk into a place that I know my ex-husband's going to be, and I've got some feelings about my ex-husband, and I walk in there with a gun, <laughs> and I know his ass going to be there, and I pull it on him, that is intent. Whereas, like, if I go somewhere and he's there, and I use a weapon of convenience, that kind of takes just absolutely correct me if I'm wrong, but does that make it harder for the prosecution to prove intent if I used a weapon of opportunity as opposed to bringing something with me? Like, no, I understand exactly what Amanda is yeah. saying. There's, there's a lot of, you know, great. We'll, we'll never know because he'll never tell us. But, well, you know, I just to me, that strikes of like criminal sophistication to say, oh, I didn't mean to. But, you know, every household in America has knives. You know, like, you know what I'm saying? Well, it requires a little speculation to say that he intended or, and, and really, you know, what, what the bigger issue than intent, obviously he intended to kill. The bigger issue is his premeditation. Had he planned the mm -hmm. intent to kill before going in there? Because he could develop an intent right. to kill after being surprised and, and obtain a, a weapon of convenience and, and commit the kill there, and it's still murder. But it right. doesn't have that aggravated factor of yeah. now. He's there's plenty of other aggravated factors here. He broke into the home in the middle of the night. He was using controlled substances. He killed children in cold blood and kept killing them. And then took steps afterwards to conceal the crime that suggests that he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's a he's a sophisticated criminal. Yes. But there, there's an argument to be made there that about premeditation. Maybe there wasn't a pre-existing intent to kill somebody before entering the crime. And, and you know, and, and reading back over this, I think the second incident, there was a suggestion that he was 
maybe it was the first incident, that he was actually looking for the boyfriend of the lady who got killed. That was postulated by one of the people who wrote about it afterwards. That doesn't make the crime any less terrible, though. You know, we, we still have yeah, innocent right. women and innocent unarmed children who are being killed, and that's still appalling just on its own. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that taking a life should always be a, a very significant thought. I mean, you know, I, I'm a strong believer in the sect in basically defending yourself and stand your ground. But I also know that if you do that, if you if you cross that line, you still you took a life and you that's a burden that you will have for the rest of your life, whether that is somebody's breaking into your home or if you got into a, a car accident. I mean, there's still, you know, this I have that whole sanctity of life thing, you know, which is I know you just met me, Spencer, but I have a thing with frogs. I'm like absolutely terrified of tree frogs. <laughs> so it, it's not funny. These, these fuckers hunt me. It's, no, I, <laughs> that's why I'm laughing. It's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> these little fuckers, and I swear to God, I think there's one on the door right now, and the door's open, and Dave's not home, so I might have some issues here. But, you know, I still, I won't kill them. I want them out of the house, but I won't kill them because it's a whole sanctity of life, even though I'm, like, terrified of them. But I just, all right, you two discuss this amongst yourself. I had to deal with this issue because well, there's something right there, and I'm not sure if it's a frog or not. I'm, I, I can't, I mean, if it's frog, are we going to deal with the frog? <laughs> yeah, well, if, if I can weigh in on that, so, there, there's a difference in, in some yeah, of the, the worst cases that I've seen, and, and this is both as a, as a former prosecutor and as a defense attorney, are DUI manslaughter cases. And they're yeah. any any homicide case, any case where there's a loss of life is very tragic. And almost the DUIs are more so because the commercial the person who committed that crime, they did do something wrong. They chose to get behind the wheel while they were impaired, but they had no intent in harming anybody, unlike the person who picks up a gun or the person who breaks into a house and something ends up going wrong. Those DUI manslaughter mm -hmm. cases are just terrible because they did not intend to harm anybody, much less cause the death of somebody, but we've still lost a life there. And it's still very serious, and right. we still have to treat them more seriously, hopefully not as seriously as somebody who commits a, a second-degree murder or something with a weapon or something like that, yeah. but we definitely take it a lot more seriously than a case where nobody died. And and the, the law tries to, right. to find a balance between DUI manslaughter and, and homicide and which are the more serious offenses. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, I agree. By the way, that was a dried smush frog. I don't want to know how that happened, but... No longer a threat. <laughs> Apparently. Oh. Well, you know, just, just gross, but okay. Sorry, I'm distracted. It was a gift. It was a gift. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, your your client, Amanda, is just laying at the door, by the way. So she's not doing anything. <laughs> so now you know that Craig Price has been transferred to Florida. Amanda was like, I'm surprised they you know, he requested to be moved from Rhode Island to Florida. And Amanda was like, oh, I'm surprised they did that. And I'm like, I'm not. Rhode Island's just like, get out. Not my problem now. But he. But Florida was, doesn't want him. Florida took him. No. <laughs> but Florida <laughs> took him. They took him. But now he was convicted, what was it, 2017 for an additional 25 years. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, looking at this case, do you honestly think that he's ever going to get out? Or do you think this is going to be a case where Florida prosecutors and the Florida justice system is going to get creative, like Rhode Island did, in saying we don't want this person out, out in uh, the community? I think he's going to be hard-pressed to get out. And they've already shown that they're willing to be maybe maybe not as creative. Because, I mean, we don't have that contempt charge that they kind of created to prosecute him for up there. But he's been, you know, we talked about the, the rarity, and, and this is speaking from a Florida prosecutor who had prison cases, the rarity of prosecuting somebody for offenses committed in prison. Well, Florida's already done that multiple times. Florida's already tacked on these these additional violations that are locked. As, as, as He was probably eager to get out of Rhode Island. He probably said, if I got a chance to get out of here, I know Rhode Island, if they have any way, they're going to keep me locked up and they're going to get creative about doing it. Maybe if I go to a different state, Oh, yeah. You know, maybe things are different. Maybe I'm not Craig Price in Florida, and maybe things go a little easier. I, you know, trying to, to read between the lines, I could definitely see how a move might have been attractive for him, but it certainly hasn't paid off because Florida has been creative about it, and Florida does have very draconian sentencing laws. So, you know, he gets in, and mm-hmm. he's made the, the problems. This isn't all just, you know, contempt charges that they – you know, try to get him to take a psych eval oh, no, and urge him for not taking the psych eval. He's been stabbing no, people he's violent. He's while been, in prison. Yes, violence. Yeah. I mean, he, he is, and, that's, and now, that's something that definitely gets prosecuted. You know, a fight might not get prosecuted. Yeah. A battery on a, a detaining officer often will get prosecuted unless the officer's like, uh, it was just a couple let it go. For him, it's definitely getting prosecuted. But you stab somebody in prison, oh, yeah. it's definitely going to get prosecuted and you're going to get a lot more, you're going to get time tacked on. So that is not unusual based on his continuing crimes and, and violence while he's been in prison. I think it's it's just genuinely his nature is that he has no regard for human life. I really feel like that's kind of been his, you know, whereas we have that little moral compass that you know, I'm not talking about your behavior. I'm talking about your, your whether or not you harm another person intentionally or, you know, or you allow yourself to engage in behavior that you know could harm another person. I think he doesn't have that. I think he doesn't have that. He is a know, true, of life. he's a true psychopath. Mm. He, you know, even during his confessions, he was mocking the victims as they died mm. when he confessed. So. That shows right now that he had zero remorse, remorse, and and absolutely no regard for human life. He may not have the capacity for empathy for the the people that were involved in this. That's what you see in a true psychopath, and and he's got those markers, and it's usually intelligent people. You know, they don't always kill in cold blood. It certainly doesn't usually happen this young, but he certainly has all the flag. I mean, we, we didn't get to have the psychological evaluation where they would have tried to determine that because he knows he wouldn't have passed that. He would have, he never would have gotten let out as a, 
uh, they would have come up with some civil commitment on him or something at that point. But he's got definitely all the Yeah, Rhode Island did have that. Yeah, that's why his attorney told him not to do that. Because in Rhode Island, regardless of your age, if you flunk that psyche valve, they can hold you indefinitely. It's not like a Baker Act where after, you know, 72 hours and after so long you have to go. They can just be like, no, you're not going back out into society and you're done because – you know, Rhode Island and Florida have a lot of similarities as somebody who's lived in both states. I mean, Rhode Island has its own level of weirdness that is comparable. <laughs> Not the same, but very close to the Florida weird, okay? You know, just I think that he was – I think you're right. I think he's very, very smart. I think he's very clever. And he just – he knows, you know, if I talk. You know, it, randomly, does Florida still have the death penalty? Florida does still have the death penalty. Yes. Do you think that there would ever be a situation that they would try to use that on him? Like, if he killed somebody in prison, do you think that they would they would go for that? I know it's speculation, but I'm just... And I didn't work on the case, but there was one in Charlotte County. There, there's been a couple in Charlotte County of, of prison murders just up the road here from us. There was the escape from, I don't know, 17, 18 years ago, and they ended up going for the death penalty because they killed a guard and as they were escaping. And then there was another one, a guy killed his, his inmate, and he had told them, he goes, don't put me in with that guy or I'm going to kill him. And, and they put him in with the guy, and he killed the guy because the guy wanted the death penalty. And so they ended up, they did end up going for the death penalty. So they will do it. And it's got to be a, a death case. You're not eligible for the death penalty in Florida, even if you stab a prison guard or something like that. But if they die, I would not be surprised if Florida... Now, because he's had such a career of crimes, it's not just the, the fact that he killed four people in Rhode Island, but he's incorrigible. He's, he's stabbing people in Florida prison. They're going to say this guy is the worst of the worst. He's killed four people. He's got a He's a career criminal in spite of being in prison his entire life. He's probably the guy they would seek the death penalty if he were to kill somebody in prison. Yeah, and I believe that when he stabbed the inmate and got the 25-year prison sentence, um, I believe they did label him a habitual felony offender at that time. Yeah, and he did. He agreed to, and that's the funny thing, is that he actually agreed to, hold on a second, He, he he agreed to being classified as a habitual felony offender. And he has bragged on multiple occasions that if he ever got out, he would, quote, make history. I mean, to me, that sounds like an absolute threat. You know, that's, I mean, really, it's almost like he's taunting the justice system to be like, you know what, fuck around, find out, let me out, see what happens. And like I said before, and I stand by this, if he ever was released, I I don't care if he gets out at 80, he's going to try to kill somebody. If he has the physical capacity to kill somebody he would absolutely do that well it's it's going to be about that because based on his he got 25 years in that stabbing case and i'm looking at the uh the florida prison page on him now his current release date is 2044 when he's going to be he's going to be 70 at that point provided he doesn't do something to extend further extend his time in prison now a lot of times people who are violent people who are even habitual criminals often age out of those behaviors. 
And but this guy, we don't know. This guy may be the exception because he's yeah. obviously probably a psychopath. He's obviously continuing to be violent even and now in middle age. And you, you got to be afraid that if he does get out, he's he's still going to be a danger. Yeah, I think yeah. I think when you when you talk about the people who age out of those behaviors, those are the type of people that kind of have those those markers that lead to a life of violence and crime. You know, I think those are the people that they're in survival mode, they're in reaction mode. That's what they, they learned. They grew up throughout the system. And eventually they just get to a point where they're like, I'm too tired. I'm too old for this shit, which is something I feel daily in my soul. But <laughs> I think with Craig, because he did not have that life, he did not have a life of being in survival mode, a life of being, you know, reactive, like having to survive and do this. I think being in in prison would make him a better criminal if he ever got out. Oh, absolutely. And prison tends, especially for somebody who, he didn't have a life of crime on the outside. He was a teenager when he got locked up. So he's, everything he's learned has been in the system. And, well, you he, know, for somebody who... He did who, start very young. Yeah. With breaking and entering and, and that. He did have a, a quite the, the juvenile record. So he had... Uh, like I said, was very, very surprising because his family was your standard middle-class blue-collar Rhode Island family. You know, they lived in a decent neighborhood. The parents were involved. And for Gen X parents, I mean, for, for parents of Gen Xers, that was rare, you know, <laughs> like he, he was not, I mean, honestly, his parents were far more involved in his life than mine were, you know, and it's just, I've said it before. I think he was just born that way. I'm agreeing with you on that. This is the, the rare case with the actual, the bad seed, the kid who was just born bad. He wasn't, he wasn't broken by abuse. He wasn't harmed by neglect. He is at a very young age choosing a life of crime and then has no remorse for it because his brain just works differently than, than most humans. Now, that's really interesting. You know, I was watching a TED Talk not too long ago about the minds of serial killers, and they were showing that serial killers' brains are swimming in, like, the sea of serotonin. And people who are not serial killers or who are not psychopaths don't have as much serotonin. So I just, I found that really interesting. And kind of makes me wonder whether, you know, some people are in fact born this way. So or you're if telling there's me a lack of serotonin is what's keeping me from being a serial killer. Good to know. Depression yes. for the win. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, depression for keeping me out. I knew my mental health would be a positive one day. But you know, sorry, in all seriousness, um, you're there are those like brain scans and things like that. Out of curiosity, I mean, it's not an exact science, obviously, that we're, we're still learning a lot about how people's minds work, but would that be something that the they would be able to do, like take a CAT scan or an MRI of his brain or, or do any type of, of mapping of, of him now that he's in prison? Is that, that something that would be op like an option or is that still like, 
I don't know how many how much rights you still have once you go to jail. Like I know that you lose a lot of them, you know, like your right to vote, depending on your felony charges and things like that. But would they be allowed to like just scan his brain, or is that something that he would have to consent to? Generally, that would have to be something that he would consent to, and you do see it with. People are on death row. They they ask for those brain scans to to as as evidence, hopefully in their favor, to bring it in front of the court and say, "Oh, I have an abnormal brain, or I have damage that that otherwise affects me, and therefore I shouldn't get the death penalty or something like." Obviously, he's not a death penalty situation at this point. I don't think there may be some way to do it, but that's not generally something you could compel somebody to do, even in a prison circumstance. And then just. Playing the devil's advocate, a role I take very seriously, do you think there is any, should we say, encouragement from the justice system to get him to behave in a negative way while locked up? I mean, he's had multiple charges against guards. Do you think there's any provoking going on that maybe people are like, oh, he's getting too close to going out, you know? We, we need to if get something on him. And, you know, it's a very antagonistic situation when somebody's incarcerated. You know, he's locked up with probably other high-risk inmates. It's a very stressful situation between the guards and the inmates, and there tends to be a lot of antagonism between the two. That potentially could have been – I mean, it's we're, we're speculating backwards here of other things. That potentially yeah. could have oh, yes. been a defense. Yeah in his charges. Now, obviously, he's been convicted of those, so so if there was antagonism, it didn't rise to the level of a defense for the offenses he's been convicted of. And, of course, the, the last one, the stabbing of the inmate, I mean, he had taken upon himself to arm himself with his prison shiv or whatever weapon he used in that offense, yeah. which suggests that, that it's more on him than on the system. So I, I definitely oh, yeah. wonder if, if there was antagonism there and, and you know, you get somebody who's locked up 24-7 for years on end and and you press the right buttons, you push the right triggers, and you're going to be able to antagonize this person, especially a, a person who's violent by nature, into committing more violence. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a risk mm-hmm. that that did happen or could have happened. As a defense attorney, and I mean, not to like violate any attorney-client privileges, have you ever had that encounter where even as a defense or even as a prosecutor where somebody in jail or in the prison system said, you know, they're out to get me They're, You know, is that something that, I mean, I'm going to be really honest. My knowledge. They of all the prison say that. System, well, my, my personal knowledge of the prison system comes from watching Oz on HBO. So, I mean, it's not really, you know, it's not something that, that I have knowledge of. And I don't, and I really think that the average person, you know, if you, you know, I've worked with homeless people. So I've worked, you know, in the mental health aspect. So I've dealt with people coming out and you hear the stories, you know, the guards were, were racist. The guards hated me. The guards were this, the guards were that, you know, and honestly, you know, I do a lot of work with behavior modification. Uh, that that's kind of a little hyperfixation for me. But I noticed that the ones who like blame, you know, the guards were this, guards were that. Those were the ones who had a tendency to be locked back up. 
you know, but the ones who were like, Hey, I screwed up while I was in there. I knew I had to get myself straight. Those are the ones who were typically more successful because they took accountability and ownership. But I'm just like, as a, an attorney, you know, do you have that? I mean, and if they say that, you know, is there any type of investigation that goes on to it? You know what? It's, it's real obtuse. I, I had a, a consult with a family who had a, had a family member as an inmate who said, I'm scared in here. And then a few weeks later, he turned up dead. And ultimately, they couldn't get an explanation on what happened. And I was in a situation where there was, as a defense attorney, certainly nothing I can do and, and maybe finding a, a civil rights attorney to figure out what had gone on there was what they needed. But no, it, it, it happens. And, and I've talked to former inmates who, man, you know, took accountability or at least kept their head down. That's, that's actually the advice I give to people when they're getting locked up is keep your head down. But there, there are, experiences both ways and it depends on it does depend on race it depends on which prison you get put into it depends on the inmates that are there with you if you've got people at antagonize them and like i told you you know there's a story in charlotte county of the guy got who said if you put me in that cell with a guy i'm gonna kill him and then he did it it's prison is still a really not nice place and well it's not meant to be you know it's not really meant to be the four seasons you know yeah <laughs> but but the, you know, it's it's one thing to, you know, to incarcerate somebody and, and for it not to be fun. And it's another thing to put a guy in a cell with somebody who's already promised to kill him, which happens in our, our Florida prison system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I suspect a, a Craig Price, who's a big guy, who's a smart guy, who's a violent guy, is probably not the guy who's intimidated by other prisoners, if you, if you catch my meaning on that. Oh, yeah, no. I highly doubt he's he's intimidated by anybody. But the funny thing, not not funny, haha, but he is described as being very gregarious, very outgoing, very charming. Like if you sat down and talked to him, he, you know, people. When we hear stories about you know people who kill, they're like, oh, you know, always bad kid, always bad this, always that. Everybody who talked about him as a child was like, he was really friendly. He was really outgoing. He was very charming, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that he got good grades. Oh, yeah. He got good grades. Like I said, there was, he was that odd, very, very curious case of Craig Price here. But it's, I don't know. He's he's so strange. <laughs> the whole system is, is strange where I don't think he's intimidated by anybody, but I also don't think that he's in prison walking around like, I am the big man in charge here. Like, you know, I, I'm the shot caller, you know, like, I think he's, I think he's just notorious at this point in time. I think he's kind of infamous. I know he's infamous in Rhode Island. He, he would, I think his family moved out of Rhode Island as a result of this you know, result of his crimes. Yeah, it would be hard not to, I'm, I would think. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, I think you're right with, you know, I, I don't think he's he's intimidated. I think, I mean, what does his, I mean, what can you see on his prison record? I mean, what is... Well, just looking at his, and there is? The, the prison, you know, shares just a list of his 
incarceration history. So they don't tell us all the fights he's been in or the, the things like that. But, but it tells me he got transferred here on looks like six or seven different counts, uh, starting with the contempt counts, but he got a bunch of, he got an escape charge. He got some assault on prisoner charges still in Rhode Island and then came down here and got using a weapon, resisting an officer with violence, battery on a law enforcement officer and an additional battery. That was several years prior to the, the attempted murder that, that ultimately is what he's serving on at this point. So that was my question and kind of just in general, what makes a crime go from like assault? This, this man has a long history of stabbing others. And while in prison, those stabbings have always been charged as assault cases. What kind of, what's the tipping point between assault and attempted murder? All right. So first in Florida, Florida separates their assault and battery charges. So they're separate crimes in Florida. So in Florida, assault is the threat to do harm against somebody. And then battery is actually the touching. So if I pull a gun on somebody, assault. If I shoot the gun and it strikes them, then it's an aggravated battery. Or if I, maybe even a better example is the fist, because if I raise my fist like I'm, and I'm ready to punch you, assault. If I actually strike you, then that's going to be a battery charge. Now, the thing about a gun is if you shoot somebody and you committed an aggravated battery with a firearm, which is inherently a deadly weapon, you're using deadly force. So that's almost inherently a, an attempted murder right there. We don't see as many attempted murder charges in Florida, maybe as in other places, because under our ranking system, attempted murder is a second degree felony and aggravated battery is a second degree felony. So. It's the same level of offense or same degree of offense, but to prove okay. attempted murder, prosecutors have to also prove the additional element of wanting to kill somebody. So a lot of times a would-be attempted murder case gets charged as aggravated battery. And if it's with a weapon, that enhances it to a first-degree felony anyway, and or it can be. There's different ways they can charge it. But, or with a firearm, okay. under 1020 life, it's a life felony. So Florida prosecutors often don't charge attempted murder. They could just charge an aggravated battery. It's easy for them to prove, and it's still just as serious a crime. They did charge attempted murder on Craig Price because he's Craig Price. I'm uh, probably, and th there might have been some additional elements. Maybe yeah. he said, I'm going to kill you. And so they had some real clear evidence of his intent to kill, not just to, to, to harm somebody. You know, I don't know that the specifics of the fact pattern on that. So you don't see it as often in Florida, but again, with a, a Craig Price, they're definitely charging the more serious offense where they can. Yeah. And right. My, that would be my follow-up question is, do you think that they charged him with attempted murder with the kind of, I don't want to say knowledge, but the a pattern of behavior is indicative of future behavior. This man has a pattern of behavior while incarcerated of attacking and injuring others, you know, typically stabbing them. That seems to be his modus operandi. That's the Do weapon you, you have think in prison. that maybe, yeah, well, you, know, you also have the fists, but he, he likes his little shanks there. He likes yeah. stabbing. Do you think that by charging him with attempted murder, it would make the prosecution's case 
easier going forward should he actually kill somebody while in prison? Is that something where we can say they could take the cumulative um, uh, behavior and put that towards, say, a death penalty case? Potentially, yes. Now, you don't usually get to say, you know, he, he's a stabber, so he must have intended to kill somebody with, with this stabbing. You don't get to use, under most circumstances, prior acts to convict him of a future offense. There is an exception. We call it Williams Rule in Florida, where is if there's a specific fingerprint to the crime, if it's unique enough and he did it enough, probably a prison stabbing is not going to be unique enough, even if that's what he does again, even though that's what he's done before, to make it his modus operandi, if you will, in order to get over the presumption of, of bringing in improper propensity evidence. We're not allowed to do propensity evidence. Now, the flip side of that is that if he does end up killing somebody, then his prior record becomes admissible and very instructive for whether or not he deserves the death penalty. And it would certainly be a major piece of evidence to introduce to the jury. It's not just that he stabbed somebody before. He tried to kill somebody before. Also, he's killed four other people. But but that's, you know... 20 some years later he's he after killing people he's trying to kill people again and the next time he does it that's definitely pushing the bar farther toward a death penalty verdict because sentencing goes to the to a jury and so those are the kind of aggravating circumstances and prior record that would a prosecutor would like to demonstrate to a jury to try to convince them if they were going for a death penalty so it it can come in in that circumstance. Now, here's just an okay. unusual question for Craig Price. Would the four murders that he was originally incarcerated for be admissible because he was a minor at the time of the act? Like, he committed them as, he was under the age 18. He was, what, 15 when he, 14 and 15, 13 and 15? When he killed, fourteen and fifteen. Yep. Generally, yes. Was that okay. unless there, there 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 might be some exceptions, like if Rhode Island doesn't allow them to be introduced, maybe they could argue that it wouldn't be introduced in Florida. But generally, even non-convicted behavior is admissible in a sentencing hearing to determine the appropriateness of a death penalty. So. Even though they were juvenile, even though he was convicted, taking away the fact that he was convicted, the prosecutor could bring in evidence that he killed. Even you know, if they if they've got somebody else that he killed that he never got prosecuted for, they could still bring in evidence of that at a sentencing hearing in Florida as evidence. So I, I suspect that okay. his prior murders would be admissible in a sentencing hearing if he were to be facing a death penalty. Okay. I did read that he was suspected of other murders around Rhode Island. Yeah. And if they had evidence, like if they got, even if he never got prosecuted, they could literally bring in somebody to say, that's the guy who killed so-and-so, even though he never got prosecuted for it. The defense could say, oh, you got the wrong guy. I mean, you have a, almost a little mini trial at sentencing. But that evidence of his behavior would be admissible in his sentencing, even if he wasn't prosecuted or convicted of it. Generally speaking, there may be, like I said, dude, we're talking about juvenile offenses from decades ago in another state, so there there may be some weirdness there. But generally, 
prior bad behavior, even non-convicted behavior, is admissible for determining the appropriateness of death penalty. Okay. I was just curious because I, I know typically they talk about, like, your juvenile record because what Rhode Island would have done at age of 21 when he stepped out of prison, it would have been sealed. Like, it never happened. Like, if he walked out of prison at age 21, the way the law was written, it would have just been sealed. Like, it never happened. So, that's why I was really curious, like, if, if we got down to that point, would he, would they be able to pull that? Or, you know, what would they be able yeah. to do? Or were, is there a loophole because he was, you know, convicted, you know? Yeah. And I'm not 100% sure. We're getting into minutia of death penalty law, which is not my practice area. But, for instance, in Florida, Florida, anytime you get convicted of a felony, has a score sheet system. But if an offense occurred when you're a juvenile, it falls off of the score sheet after several years. So those offenses wouldn't score on his Florida score sheet. That's why, not on this offense, but on the the previous offense, he only got a few years, probably because even though they knew who he was and that he'd done those things, his score sheet wasn't that bad, but add those offenses on with a new offense and he got a much more substantial sentence. I suspect they'd still be admissible, even though they didn't score on the score sheet, but I'm not 100% sure of that. Okay. It's, like I said, it, this was just a very interesting, you know, fascinating crime, yeah. not only because of his age, but when Amanda and I started talking about doing the podcast, this was the case that I brought up, because Rhode Island changed their laws because of Craig Price. They, you can now be charged as an adult, whereas before it was, nope, if you're under the age, I believe the age was like 17. If you're under the age of 17, you were not. they could not charge you as an adult, uh, regardless of how heinous the crime was, as evidenced by Craig Price. But now they've, they've changed those laws. I had an adjunct professor in college who referred to the maximum security wing at the uh, juvenile detention center in Rhode Island as the Craig Price wing. They actually redesigned the center. They did because he was so unique to Rhode Island that they actually changed the juvenile detention center itself to have a maximum security portion to it. And it's just, this is one of those crimes that really did set precedence as far as, in so many ways. Yeah. A, you know, like I said, for, for him to be young and, and that. So, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it. And I'd like to get your your guys thoughts on changing the law over a over a case. There's a maxim in the law, not just criminal law, but that bad facts make bad law. That is, if you make if you ch- make changes to the law in a reactionary way over a specific one, you know, singular, unique case, does that create bad law in other circumstances. And this is a, a prime example of a singular case that caused the law to change. Now, I'll go and say, I'm surprised that Rhode Island didn't have some way to charge juveniles as adults at all. I mean, sometimes it's appropriate. Craig Price being the prime example, but when you got somebody who does things that are so wrong and incomprehensible and so violent that the juvenile system just can't handle that, you almost need some kind of greater outlet, be it adult charges or some sort of extended juvenile sanctions to be able to to handle 
somebody of that can commit crimes of this nature. Right. I think there's always going to be the possibility of laws being exploited. I think there's always going to be the exception to the rule. We don't live in a perfect society. Are there knee-jerk reactions? Yes, absolutely. People have, oh, there ought to be a law. As somebody who is a screaming libertarian, I'm like, no, typically there doesn't. But there are exceptions to, to that. I think murder being that exception. You know, that is where you are harmed when, when your actions harm another person, there needs to be consequences with, like I said, with Craig Price, I think that they did make a good call. I think that Rhode Island prior to Craig Price was operating under the belief that you're under the age of 18, you are still developing. You're still in that child development stages. You're still, you're growing. You're in that adolescence. Adolescence And as do you know, that extends into the 20s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, my it, thought it, is that it really depends. I think that it just depends on the law. I think there are always going to be laws that no one really ever anticipates something happening, such as, with the case of Craig Price, I don't think Rhode Island ever anticipated having such a savage serial killer at such a, a young age. But I, I don't think my issue that. with <laughs> right, but yeah. Well, the thing with the laws too is that there are so many different ways to interpret a law. So you can literally go to three different legal people and ask about a law and get three different answers. So my, you know, my prime example is that it comes to the Baker Act. So, you know, with the Baker Act, there are certain things that, you know, it says in the law that need to be followed. But I just had an instance not too long ago, and I asked three different magistrates, and of course, nobody can answer me. But, you know, the issue is that the way most laws are written, there are multiple ways to interpret those laws. And then that's why we have attorneys to argue those interpretations of those laws. Does that make yeah, any sense? I, I, and then the courts rule. It, it, and, no, it, it does. And they give us the interpretations we're supposed to follow until somebody convinces them otherwise. Exactly. Yeah, I think, and that, that also goes back to the complexity of the laws. You know, we're, we're pretty, you've got... The Baker Act is a prime example because we can sit there and murder is wrong. You know, he broke into their homes. He had no business mm -hmm. to be in their homes. He took their lives. Wrong. We know that that's wrong. But right. the Baker Act, you have, you know, and as a social worker, I have had situations where I've had to have people Baker Acted. And I've also had situations where I'm like, is this really a psychotic episode is this the meds are off what you know i prim primarily work with the elderly and one of the most common ailments amongst the the senior population is a uti uh urinary tract infection mm -hmm. and it, as people get older when they develop the utis they can also present with altered mental status now do i think somebody right. with Alter, with a UTI should be Baker acted? No, they should be placed on IV fluids with a broad spectrum antibiotic. But I, I know what you're saying with the criteria. And I think, you know, 
with laws and when the laws are changed, it should meet the criteria. I mean, I could go into a whole rant on, you know, we have, we've empowered the police to make arrests and, and to kind of make judgment calls on it. But if none of us really know the laws and we need a lawyer like Spencer to explain to us, you know, some of these things, there's always going to be, I, I don't, I go back to Emmett Till. I'm going way back when it comes to those, the children being charged as adults. I go back to that case. And I think Rhode Island was kind of going with that case when they were making their laws to say that juveniles could not be charged as adults. Because I think you're talking both sides of the spectrum here. You had a, an innocent child that was killed. And then you have basically a monster that should have been subjected to adult laws. Does that make any right. sense? Yeah. It, the, the law is trying to strike a balance between recognizing that children are children and haven't developed versus sometimes they do really bad things that, that you can't treat like juvenile shenanigans. And, you know, Florida right. yeah. gives the prosecutors a lot of discretion in our laws that, and you know, unless it's a murder or something that needs to be charged as an adult, they have the power to charge a lot of things as adult if the prosecutor chooses to do so. And then you run the risk of disparities in the way that's applied. You run, you know, a few years ago, we had, we have 20 different prose elected prosecutors in Florida, and one was charging way more juveniles with adult charges across the board than any other. And she was perfectly within her rights to do that. I'm not naming names, but she got voted out. And you wonder, you know, how many kids that should have gotten a second chance that should have gone through the juvenile system ended up with adult felonies within the discretion of that prosecutor. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where it became can be a problem. Right. But isn't that where, in, well, just side note, juvenile court cases, if they're being charged as an adult, do they go before a, a jury? Yes. In Florida, yes. if charged as a juvenile, they take them before a jury and they're facing full adult sanctions. So, well, okay. there used to be charges with potential mandatory life in prison without parole because there's no parole in Florida. And the Supreme Court just a few years ago said, that's impermissible. You can't have automatic life without parole for a juvenile. And a whole bunch of sentences had to go back and be revisited in Florida because we had a whole bunch of children who got life without a parole and, and no mm -hmm. chance to ever see daylight. Yeah, yeah the cash beans was one of those. Oh, those are, that's another one I want to talk about. The cash coming down from her fourth sentencing hearing. Oh, wow, I didn't her know that. Her third sentencing was recently overturned. And it's going to be coming back again. Oh, boy. That'll be fun. All right. Well, I think on that note, we're going to go ahead Teaser and wrap up. for the up. future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you. So <laughs> I just want to say thank you to Spencer right. for uh, joining us today. Time, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Spencer. And we'll see you again in a few it. weeks. All right. We will see you all next week.